Heavenly Father, we, we need you. We are in desperate need of seeing you, understanding your word, and hearing from you today, Father God. And there is nothing in us that can cause us to see you the way that we need to, for this to, to be meaningful, for this to matter, except for your Holy Spirit, Father. And so I pray right now over the next few minutes that you would remove any error from my mouth, that you would protect these people and myself from any, anything that I might say that would be wrong or in error, Father God, and that only your truth, the truth of your word, would stand out and be held out by the gospel and by your glory, Father, and that we would see you and know you in a way that we had not previously known. Do this great work in our hearts, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your, your Bibles, and I, I hope that you do, please grab them and open your copy of God's Word to the third chapter of the book of Jonah. I think this is week five in our study of, of Jonah. Last week, if you recall, things came to a head. This, the central event that the book of Jonah is, is really known for, most known for at least, this great fish swallowing Jonah just happened, and we talked uh, throughout all of uh, the last uh, message about how amazing it is that God was so merciful and so loving and so gracious to Jonah, despite Jonah and uh, everything he's done not to deserve God's affection and love, God saves him, and it's a remarkable thing, and the salvation that we see in, in Jonah 2 is really a picture of the salvation that everyone who through faith has trusted, who has held fast to Jesus and, and claimed him as a savior. Everyone who's experienced that has experienced the salvation that Jonah experienced at some point in their lives. At some level, we recognize that. And so Jonah is saved in this story. He is vomited, thrown up by the fish onto the dry land at the end of chapter two. And this is where chapter three begins. And so we'll, we'll start with verse one says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So finally, we see a little bit of obedience from Jonah. This is an amazing thing. Uh, if you've been with us so far, in chapter one, upon receiving this command, if you guys remember in the first week, Jonah refused and straight up ran from God. He fled the presence of the Lord, it said. Instead of going to Nineveh to preach and to call out against it, Jonah climbed onto a ship and went in the exact opposite direction um, because he did not want to go to Nineveh to preach at all. Uh, but God pursued him, sent a storm after him as he fled on ship and forced the sailors of the ship to throw him overboard. And if you recall last week, Jonah fell all the way to the bottom of the sea, and he came face to face with what was certain death. And God delivered him. And so now we see Jonah is obeying. We see something has definitely changed in his heart, but questions still remain about what that is and some of those answers we'll get in chapter 4. But right now, Jonah is going to go to Nineveh, praise be to God, finally, and he's going to preach the word that the Lord has given to this massive city, the city of, of this Assyrian empire. And so let's see how this plays out in verse 3. It says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. 
Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. Now the text says here that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. And in the Hebrew, the the literal translation actually goes a bit further and says it was a great city to God, to God. And so there's two dimensions we should probably understand this as. The first is the most obvious, the sheer geographic boundaries of this city, the scale of its population. It was objectively a massive, enormous city. One of the major cities at this time, we don't know if it was the capital or not, but the major city at this time of the Assyrian Empire, the greatest empire on the planet Earth during this point in history. And it says here that it was three days' journey in breath. This is an immense city. In chapter 4, we'll read, God says it had uh, or it, there was 120,000 persons in it. We don't know if that was specifically counting men as head of the household or if it was counting uh, just all people in generally but 120,000 people are represented in this number when we talk about Nineveh. At the very least, there's an enormous amount of people in this city. And so physically, it is certainly an exceedingly great city, but it's also clear from the whole spirit of this book and the purpose of this book and the objective of this book in God's purposes that this is a great city to God. This is a great city to God. In other words, God values and loves the city of Nineveh and its people. Despite its sin, despite its wickedness, and we said before that the Assyrian people at this time were historically, objectively, one of the most brutal and violent empires to ever live on the planet. They were ruthless butchers, really. They were a a, a warmongering country that showed no mercy to anyone, In fact, if I were to enumerate, and I mentioned this in the first week, if I were to enumerate some of the things that they did, you would not be able to eat lunch afterwards. This is how horrible it is. And yet, God loves them. God loves these people. He's compassionate towards these people. Even at the close of the book, God says of Nineveh that the people did not know their right hand from their left. He pities their moral blindness, their moral callousness. And so God desires to grant them mercy. The same mercy that they have denied people after people after people for decades, centuries. And to do this, God sends, to grant them mercy, God sends Jonah. And here we see finally Jonah is preaching. It says that after a day's journey into the city, Jonah calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown which may be the shortest sermon in the history of the world. (laughs) Some of you guys are like, how about you practice this a little bit, Jeremy? Tighten it up a little bit. So short, actually, this line is that most scholars think that, or a lot of scholars, not most scholars, I should say, think that there was probably more said than is being depicted here. But to be honest, we don't know that for sure. We can't say that for sure. This line is all that we have. This is what God desired for us to know was preached to Nineveh, to which they responded with repentance. Um, And it says in verse 3 that uh, Jonah, when he preached, when he went to Nineveh, he did it 
to according to the word of the Lord. So at the very least, we know from here that Jonah was obedient to tell them everything that God wanted to tell them because he did it according to the word of the Lord. And he was faithful in that way, communicating what God wanted, which is further validated later when Nineveh responds. Look at verse five where it says that, it doesn't say that they believed Jonah, it says that they believed God. So clearly what Jonah was talking about was when they heard Jonah speak, they heard God speak ultimately. That was God's word for them and they believed God. They heard that God was gonna overthrow this city in 40 days and they believed him and their response is to fast and put on sackcloth. It says every one of them, every one of them, from the greatest of them to the least of them, which is just another way of saying that their response was universal. It was across the board. They all believed God and they were all penitent. It did not matter in Nineveh what your socioeconomic status was. It did not matter what your financial standing was. It did not matter what part of the city you grew up in. It did not matter any of those things. All of them were bypassed. When you heard this word, you believed it, and you responded with repentance. So this was a radical, across-the-board culture shift for this massive pagan city. And the author, in a second, is going to go deeper and drill down into what this looked like in the heart of the king, how the king of Nineveh responded to this. But before we look at this, I want to pause for a second and just recognize, remember what happened last week, Jonah being saved by God. Do you remember what the last line of his prayer of thanksgiving was to God? Salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, man does not contribute anything to his salvation. Every ounce of it comes from God's gracious and loving hand. And we see this here, eight words in the English language. Eight words in the English language and an entire city repents. There's no other way to ex explain this. This is a profound, radical expression of God's grace transforming hearts and minds. There's just no other explanation you can offer for what happens to Nineveh. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we see this more clearly as we look at the king here in verse six, verses 6 through 9. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So the author of Jonah wants to make it very clear to the readers that this act of repentance is very real, very far-reaching and deep. The king of Nineveh, the one with the most authority, the, the most power, hears this word. He stands up from his throne, throne, removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth and ashes, trades the luxury and comfort of his, of his position of power for the humiliation of the ash heap and the coarseness of the sackcloth. It was an expression in ancient times of debasement. It was an expression of humiliation. Um, 
the goal in doing those things, sackcloth, ashes, all of those things, was to show in the ancient world repentance. It draws the body into the experience of the soul. It pulls the body, the physical body, into the soul's own penitence. And it is a picture of the king's heart. And so he publishes this. Everybody's going to do this. Everybody's got to do this. All throughout Nineveh, commanding his people to do the very same thing that he's doing to fast. Even the animals. Even the animals. This is how desperate, this is how much he believes Jonah is saying and how desperate he is to avert the crisis that is headed their way. He tells them to call out mightily to God. Call out to Jonah's God, which we saw Jonah do last week when he was drowning below the Mediterranean, and that everyone, the king says, should turn from their evil way and turn from the violence in their hands. Who knows, he says. God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish, the king says. He doesn't even really know if it's a possibility. I mean, think about it. Jonah doesn't tell him it's a possibility. Jonah just tells him what's headed in his way. He doesn't know this is a possibility. The only hope that Nineveh has right now, this city that was rooted in violence, this city that was brutal, the only hope that they have right now is in turning from their entire course of life and trusting in the word of God, and trusting in the word of the Lord that he might have mercy if he sees this change, this vast change that they make. God might forgive them, possibly, and may not overthrow the city in 40 days as Jonah preached. And so this is their hope. This is their, this is their pursuit by doing this. Now, this is, this is extremely ironic in the Hebrew language because this word overthrow that's used by Jonah in his preaching is interesting. It's hafak in the Hebrew, and hafak means to turn, to overturn something. You see it on the ground, you want to flip it over, you overturn it. And this is the overthrow that Jonah preached. And to be sure, this means that there is a real destruction headed in their way. But think about what happens here when they repent. They do get overturned. They get overturned radically. Um, they deserved the fierce anger of God. I mean, they deserved it. They had denied mercy to people after people after people after people. This was justice, justice headed their way. But another kind of overturning happens. A people who'd never trusted in this God before begin to trust him. They are granted faith and repentance by the grace of God. And their entire way of life changes. So we mentioned this in the first week. Their primary deity in Assyria was Asher. Asher was the god of war. So all of their violence, all of their, their brutality was coming out of this worship of this deity, this false deity, and directed towards this false deity. And it says here that they turned from their violence in their hands, from their evil. And what this looks like to me is they abandoned their primary deity to embrace and believe in God. Nineveh actually was overturned, as Jonah said, in a far more radical way than destruction would have overturned them. And we see God's response to this as he looks across the people of Nineveh. It says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God surveys this radical transformation that he's brought about across every station of life in Nineveh, and he does exactly what the people of Nineveh are pleading with him to do. He has mercy, extravagant mercy, and he relents from the disaster that Nineveh should have experienced. Now think about this. This is a nation that thrived on atrocities. They thrived on it, and yet God looks at them and grants them repentance and forgives them. And God relents. Um, They do not get what they deserve. They get grace. Unless we think that they earn this by some of the penitent actions, because there's a description of penitent actions. We got sackcloth, we got fasting, we got sitting in ashes. Unless we think, lest we think that they earned it or merited it by doing this, we know that that's not the case. And we know that that's not the case because of this. Chapter 4, verse 2, a passage that we've read multiple times. It's not on the screen, so you're going to have to look at it in your Bible. Um, we've read it multiple times, um, but it's a passage that shows us the reason why Jonah ran in the foot. Jonah knew this was going to happen before he set a foot inside of Nineveh. He knew it was going to happen. The very reason he ran from God is because in Jonah's mind, this wasn't hanging in the balance. This wasn't a big question mark for him whether or not Nineveh was going to turn. Jonah knew that this was going to happen um, because he knew that Nineveh would respond to God's call for repentance with repentance. That's what verse 2 says. That's why he ran. He knew God was going to grant them mercy. This isn't something that Nineveh cooked up on their own. Otherwise, if it was, Jonah would have been confident, I'm going to go there, I'm going to preach, they're not going to repent, I'm going to sit back and watch God destroy this city. But he doesn't. He runs in the opposite direction because he knows that that isn't going to happen. He knows what his God is like. And their response to Jonah's preaching is that God overturns this entire city by his grace. Now, we're going to soon learn as we go further, not next week, but the week after, that Jonah's own response to his fact is running initially from the command to preach um, is rooted in something that is very broken in Jonah, a deep-seated sin, a hatred he has for a very specific aspect of God's grace. And we're going to look at that in a few weeks. It is wicked and evil. This is a prophet of God. It is sin that he's still harboring in his heart, despite everything that he experienced, everything that he experienced last week, being saved by God from certain death, there are still things that are messed up in him. He is still profoundly broken, but his understanding and his anticipation of God's radical grace for Nineveh, that God would overturn this entire city, is completely warranted. He knew it. He knew this was going to happen because this is who God is. This is who God is. And so what this passage is calling on all of us to do as we read Jonah 3, people like us, people who are like Jonah, people who are like Nineveh, who have experienced and tasted something of God's radical grace firsthand, is that we would be filled with confidence and boldness that God is able to do the same thing that he did to Nineveh. That's our God that did that. 
that he is able to do the same thing. When we faithfully communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, God can and God will save people. That the degree of sin and the degree of rebellion, even resistance to the very act of preaching, is zero indication of whether or not God can save somebody. Zero indication of whether or not God at any moment can save a soul, can overturn a heart. And so what I want to spend the rest of our time doing today (laughs) is stirring up my faith and my confidence and your faith and confidence that our God really is the same God in Jonah 3, that the God that we worship and serve today is not different than that God. His hands are not tied. His hands are not tied that our God is really mighty to save and that there is no city on this planet, no city on this planet that is beyond the reach of his grace. And the reason why that's true is this. It is the very Spirit of God who causes the overturn to happen. It is the Spirit of God who gives life. So listen to Jesus in John 6, 63. Jesus is talking throughout all of John 6, really. It's an an amazing, remarkable chapter. God willing, we'll be in John next year. Um, And I, I don't know if we'll read John 6 next year, but we will start our campaign through the book of John next year. Um, And I can't wait to get to John 6. It is an awesome chapter that discusses and engages why some people believe in Jesus and why other people don't, why other people reject him. And Jesus is about to answer this. He's saying to his disciples this, it is the spirit, the spirit of God who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I, that Jesus, have spoken to you our spirit and life. Jesus' point here is, is profound because it means that the flesh, our, our natural reasoning, our thinking and inclinations, they may contribute to where we land at the end of the day, but they are not ultimate and they cannot ultimately give us the life that we so desperately need. He says the flesh is of no help at all. But... The Spirit of God can give life. And God's Spirit and life are communicated, Jesus says here, through His very words. The same words that we have in Scripture, the Gospel. Those words are that powerful. There is a powerful work of the Spirit of God in the hearts of broken, sinful, rebellious people, and it is not a natural event. It is a supernatural event that happens. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we know this is true because... Throughout all of scripture, we see pictures of this and we see statements of it. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And in Romans 8, 7, he goes even further than that. He says that the mind of the flesh, the mind that is natural is actively hostile to God and cannot, he says cannot, even submit to anything that God has commanded, no less the command to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. The flesh is of no help, Paul says. But when the words of Christ are preached, the Spirit of God uses them to penetrate unbelieving, resistant 
hearts and eradicate the hostility. Subdue it. Say, you're not going to dominate this place anymore. And bring life where there was only death before. That's what the Spirit of God can do. And I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian. I think we think about Christianity as just this religion. We think about it as, a, I changed my mind, I was converted, I changed my opinion about something. Christianity is not a new religion or a new worldview. It is literally, as Scripture describes it, being raised to life from death. That's what it is. And we see this throughout the entire corpus of Scripture. Uh, we see it in John 3. We see it in Colossians 2. We looked at that last year. We see it in 1 John 5. But the clearest picture of this in all of the Scripture, in my opinion, and it's the one we're going to be looking at today, is in Ephesians 2. So if you want to turn over to Ephesians 2, verse 1. In Ephesians 2, Paul paints the bleakest picture of what it is like to be an unbeliever. You cannot get darker than this. You cannot get bleaker than this. And then in verse 4, he shows us how God fixes the situation. So look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. This is what Paul's saying. He's talking to the Ephesian church about what they were before they encountered Christ and the gospel. And you were, he says, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is it's probably not an overstatement to say this is the bleakest, darkest picture of the human heart, the human condition that you could possibly paint. And Paul does not, he's not scared about going there. He goes straight to this. It's not possible to make it worse than this. Can't be more than dead. Dead is the worst that it can get. But here's the thing. It's 100% true. It is 100% true of the unbelieving heart. This was true about Nineveh before Jonah preached. This was true about the Ephesians before they were saved by God. This was true about each one of us before we came to receive Christ Jesus. This was true. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we were really dead. Not physically dead. That's, who cares about that? Spiritually dead. Eternally dead. And we were following, it says, a, 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 following the course of this world, following a, a, a path carved out by Satan himself. And everybody was on it. Everyone was on it. It says, along all of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived. These are, it's everybody in humanity that is predisposed to disobey God. And he says, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were born into this world, naturally predisposed to hold on to things and love things more than God. We were, we were predisposed to reject God. This is what Paul is painting here, and that pathway leads to eternal destruction. If this passage ended with verse 3, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be gathered here. We wouldn't be talking. 
we wouldn't know each other, we wouldn't know Jesus. But there's a verse four, and that's where we're gonna go next. Paul continues despite the heaviness of the first three verses and says something amazing. Even these first two words are incredible. In the middle of our deadness and our rebellion, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, Paul says, you have been saved through faith and this is not your doing. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then this final verse, for we, meaning every Christian in the world, are his workmanship. He made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think about how Paul first describes God in this text. God is rich in mercy, rich in mercy. God has a, a great love with which he loves us such that we were dead in our trespasses and sins without any hope in the world and God made us alive together with Christ. He stepped into the situation and made us alive. He did not wait for us to, be, to come alive. He did not look around to see, is there any indication that I can make this person alive? He commanded our hearts like Lazarus and we lived. He says, by grace we've been saved through faith, raised with Christ Jesus to enjoy the immeasurable riches of God's kindness in Christ Jesus. Um, and it begins now, that, that experience of enjoying God begins now and through faith and will continue astonishingly for all eternity. Think about that for a second. The experience of loving Jesus that started when you first trusted him will never end. It won't end. You will always feel this way for all eternity. And all of this is a gift from God so that no one would boast. From our first breath of faith to every single good thing that we will ever do in our lives that arises from a soul that's been redeemed by Christ, all of that, Paul says, he takes all of that and says, God's workmanship, that's God that did that. God created that, it's his workmanship. It didn't happen because of you, it didn't happen because of Nineveh. Think about Nineveh for a second. All that they did in response to the word being preached to them. None of that contributed to God providing them with the salvation. All of that, the penitence, the repentance, the sorrow, all of that was an overflow from God's own act of grace already in their hearts. He had already overturned their hearts. That's why they did those things. And this is true about everyone who has faith in Christ Jesus. So that we can all say, like we can all say this, everything that's good in me, every single thing that is good in me is from Jesus. I don't bring anything to the table. He did it all, including my desire to hold on to him and trust him every moment that I do. That is a gift from God. 
And this is how God saved Nineveh. This is how God saves anyone. It's not their own doing, Paul says. It is a gift. And here's the thing for us today. This is the greatest news in the world. This is the greatest news in the world, especially for people who live in the greater Seattle area. Especially for people who live in this amazing city and the, the outlying regions that we call our home, whether east side, west side, wherever you find yourself, whether you live in Kingsgate or outside of Kingsgate, this city, as beautiful, as amazing as it is, the culture, the people, the trees, sitting out there before service, looking up at the trees, they don't have those in Orlando. They are glorious. The fresh air, the food that we have here. Think about the city of Seattle and all the good that we experience by living in this larger, greater area and recognize that what God said about Nineveh at the close of the book is exactly what's true about Seattle. They do not know their right hand from their left. They don't. They do not know it. And they can't see it. And I'm not talking about an ambiguous mass of humanity. I'm talking about your neighbors, people you see face to face. I'm talking about human beings who God has sovereignly brought us near, whether you see it or not. And they are just as lost and just as dead as Ephesians 2. That's where they are. They don't know it. They're just as dead. And so Ephesians 2.4 is the greatest news in the world. This is awesome. This is incredible that this is true. Because if I can be real with you, nobody thinks that they're this dead. Nobody thinks that they need Jesus. Nobody does. They think they're fine. They think they're okay without him. They don't need him. Maybe you need him as a crutch. But they don't need him. And these are people you know. These are people you love. These are people you've probably prayed for with tears in your eyes and they will never believe outside of the hope that is in these verses. They will not believe. And so what Jonah 3 tells us, this picture of Nineveh coming to repent, is this, and you need to hear me on this. There is no soul in the universe. There is no soul in the universe that is too darkened and too blind that the light of the gospel cannot break in and save them. There isn't. There is no heart that is too hard or cold to the beauty of Jesus Christ that the glory of Christ cannot invade with a word into their hearts and change that person's soul's trajectory for all eternity. There isn't anyone like that. There is no one you know, no one you know, no one who is so dead in their trespasses and their sins, so hostile to their need for a savior that God cannot, with a word, save them right now. And I'm talking about your friends. I'm talking about your coworkers. I'm talking about your family, people you love, people you care about, people you don't even care about, but you probably should. Everyone in that category, these are people who have hope because everything we just read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is true. The dark stuff and the good stuff the stuff about God being able to save them. God is not impaired by their unbelief. He's not shackled by their rebellion. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? He's not. God is not weakened by their hardness of heart. He can overturn their lives just like he did for Nineveh. But the way that God is determined to work is this. 
that he would love these people, not through some invisible, intangible, floaty kind of love that they experience outside of anything in the real world, but rather that he would love these people through us. That's how God's determined to work. God sent Jonah. Think about that. We've been with him for three chapters now. God sent Jonah. That was his means, his instrument for showing love. A man who is very broken. We're going to see that next or two weeks from now. Very broken, very sinful in many ways, yet the one who communicates God's word. And so the call is clear, and it's directed towards us. The word of the Lord that came to Jonah is no different than the word of the Lord that comes to us through all of Scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the call is clear. Christ has commanded us, before he left, to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That was his command to us, to preach the gospel, not just with our words, but to display the very love that, has been, that we've been embraced by, by sacrificially serving everyone around us through word and deed. And in all of that, this passage in Jonah 3 tells us we can have great confidence that God will save people because salvation belongs to him. And what that means is this. Seattle is still on the table as far as God is concerned. You may not think that. God does. Seattle is still on the table. Kingsgate out here is still on the table. He has not given up on them yet. And if you want objective evidence to suggest to you that it, that's true, look around. We're a church in Kingsgate. He is not done with these people. He's not done with the greater Seattle area. He still has people in this city. And he loves them deeply, far beyond anything you or I could ever feel or experience. And we, people like us, are his means for communicating that love. We are how God does it. And so in the next few moments, we're going to take communion and we're going to worship God, celebrate Christ and his death and resurrection through the act of communion. And I want this fact, this radical display of God's grace in Nineveh to, God willing, permeate our hearts, all of our hearts, my heart especially, permeate our hearts and our minds as we take the bread and cup and realize that God's plan of redemption goes beyond us to the people that are around us. And to help us with this, I'm going to briefly, very briefly, read one final passage from 1 Timothy. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy. Timothy knows why Paul's a Christian. He's heard the story hundreds of times. But Paul wants to tell him one more time with clarity, why is it that Paul, a persecutor of the church, is a Christian? What happened to make him a believer? Not physically, what happened inside of him? Why did God do it this way? Paul says <laughs> to Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith 
and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I, Paul says, am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner in the world, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The doxology at the end is like almost like just bursting out of him as he remembers what happened to him on Damascus. He can't, he still can't even believe it. Paul, as he writes this letter to Timothy, lives and dies for the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants nothing more than Christ Jesus to be magnified. Yet he says here, I was the foremost sinner. I was the foremost sinner. There isn't anyone in all of the world, and I would argue in all of history, that is worse than Paul. And I think we can take the future tense from this text because Paul specifically says that God was using him as an example to people who would come later on, as example to believers down the road, as an example to us who would believe in eternal life. There isn't anyone, Paul is saying, when God redeemed me, he was saying that there isn't anyone in all of history that is too far gone in anywhere in the world that is too far gone for God to be able to save. There isn't anyone. Paul, the chief enemy, chief opponent, unequaled in his hatred for Jesus. No one's ever hated anybody like Paul's hated him. No one ever will. Paul was on ground zero. He saw Jesus preach. We don't get to experience that. What we're rejecting is a story someone told. Paul saw Christ, or at least saw Christians acting like Christ. He was a contemporary. He rejected the man. And so what we see here is a person who in though he is the chief sinner, though he's the foremost sinner, rejects, or though he's the foremost sinner who's rejecting Jesus, who hates Jesus, in a moment, the entirety of his being is conquered by the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Jesus infiltrates his heart. And so as we take the elements and we embrace the, the elements of communion, I would ask that you do with, with, you, with your heart, with every fiber of your being, do everything you can to embrace the truth that Christ Jesus really did come into the world to save sinners. He really did. He really did. And you know some of them that he died for. You know them. You know their faces. You know their names. So pray to God for their salvation. Pray to God that we would not run away like Jonah does in, in the first chapter, but that we would go to them and communicate the gospel to them because the only way that they'll know the love of Jesus is if we, the very people who God has redeemed, the people who God has put in their lives, tell them of that love. There is no plan B. There's none. We are plan A, and we are it. God determined to use his people to tell the gospel. So if you hear one thing from me today, please let it be this. Take heart, be confident that God can actually do far more abundantly than all that we can hope for and dream of. He can He's not done with Seattle. He's not done with Kingsgate. Because while we're here, while their church is still here, he is still very much at work.
And so pray with me that God would overturn this city, this community for his glory and for their joy. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we recognize from our own hearts the desperate need that we have to hear the gospel and to receive the good news of Jesus. That we were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we, were, we see. We were dead, but now we are alive. We did not do that. And so when we come to you to worship you in the next few minutes and we pray and we receive the elements of communion, Father, help us recognize that Jesus' death on that cross was sufficient to redeem anyone. There is no one whose heart is so hard that the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ cannot penetrate. Help us see that. Help us be faithful in communicating your word, Father God. Help us trust in the power of the cross. And Father, give us confidence and boldness in our workplaces, in school, in every mode of life that we find ourselves in, Father God, to trust you that if we faithfully communicate the gospel, your Holy Spirit is powerful enough to come and transform lives. Help us believe that. Help us know that to be true, Father God. I pray that you do that in my heart, Lord, and in the hearts of each person in this room. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.